we all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge take a moment visit betterhelp.com slash gold today to get 10 percent off your first month that's betterhelp h-e-l-p.com slash gold in my early days i faced a pivotal moment in my career instead of following the herd into traditional finance i charted my own course despite skepticism i founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility through perseverance i established myself as a leading voice in finance proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed to get what you want sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail that's what harry's did seeing people tricked by expensive razors harry's took a stand Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harris.com slash gold for a $3 trial set. The Peter Schiff Show. Earlier today, the monetary drug pushers at the Federal Reserve gave the addicts on Wall Street exactly the fix that they had been craving. In fact, not only did... uh, Powell deliver exactly what the doctor ordered with respect to interest rates, saying the Fed was going to remain patient, probably indefinitely, with respect to another rate hike. But Powell also made it clear that the balance sheet wind down, otherwise known as quantitative tightening, was off of autopilot. And in fact, based on what Powell said, I would be surprised to see any significant reductions in the Fed's balance sheet from here. Not surprising, the market rallied as a result of getting what they wanted out of the Fed. At one point, I think the Dow was up better than 500 points, but it did close up 434 points, back above 25,000, 2514.86 to be precise. But, you know, just like any addict, they can never get enough. I think that soon the markets are going to be demanding a lot more from the Fed than just a cessation of rate hikes and a commitment not to shrink the balance sheet. I think what the addicts are going to require is going to be more quantitative easing and a return to zero 
And that is exactly what the Federal Reserve is going to provide once it realizes that that's what's necessary. Now, of course, I don't think that is going to work. I think that is going to deliver the overdose that I have been warning about since the Fed first went down uh, on this, uh, this mistaken policy road. I knew that we would ultimately end up exactly where we are headed. It's just that the markets still haven't figured this out. The markets really need to be focusing on the why, not just looking about what the Fed is doing, but why the Fed is doing it and what it actually means about the underlying health of the U.S. economy or the efficacy of prior Fed policy. Now, if you listen to the, the press conference and even just read the prepared remarks that, that um, you know, happened prior to the press conference, the Federal Reserve wants to pretend that everything is still great that the U.S. economy is still in great shape. In fact, the Fed wants to pretend the U.S. economy is just as good as it was when it hiked rates following the September meeting, let alone the December meeting. Going back to September, when the Fed was saying that they were going to do maybe three or four rate hikes in 2019 and that the balance sheet unwind was on autopilot, that the Fed was just going to set that aside and let it you know, sell off about $50 billion worth of treasuries and mortgages every month. Just forget about it, not even worry about it. And um, <clears throat> that the Fed was going to simply focus on interest rates, right? Even if something happened bad in the economy, they were going to let the the, the quantitative tightening program continue on autopilot, that the only changes that they were prepared to make uh, with, with respect to interest rates, right? So at that point, the Fed was very optimistic on the economy, and they had a, a policy of continued rate hikes and uh, autopilot QT. Now, here we are just a few months later, nothing has actually changed with the overall economy. Yes, we've had a government shutdown. The shutdown is over. Not that big a deal. I mean, there has been weak economic data, but there's been weak economic data that the Fed has been ignoring the entire time. I mean, they've been looking at a lot of the lagging indicators like the jobs numbers or a lot of the soft survey numbers that had to do with just some optimism and ignoring a lot of hard data. Uh, but the only thing that's really changed between the September meeting and today is a bear market in stocks, the bear market that happened in the fourth quarter of last year and the acceleration of the downtrend that accompanied the last rate hike that the Fed delivered in December. That's the only substantive difference between now and then. And that's the only reason that the Federal Reserve has done a complete 180 when it comes to monetary policy, right? Going from uh, a hawkish type policy to a dovish policy. Now, again, you could say, well, some economic data uh, has weakened. But again, that trend happened long before the stock market finally noticed it. I think what happened in the fourth quarter is the stock market finally noticed the weakening uh, data that it had been ignoring and the, uh, the, uh, the Fed tightenings began to catch up to the market. And then when the market officially hit bear market territory, the Fed did exactly what I've been saying they would do all along. Uh, they panicked and they caved and they capitulated and reversed course. But Powell can't admit that any more than he could admit that he was pressured by Donald Trump 
into uh, changing his monetary policy. See, the Fed has to pretend that the economy is in great shape, right? And that maybe the reason for a change in policy has to do with some external factors, right? Because the Fed wants to help the market, desperately wants to help the stock market. The Fed wants to help the economy. But the last thing it wants to do is admit that either the market or the economy needs help. So it has to manufacture some kind of BS reason to explain this 180-degree flip in policy. And basically what Powell was saying was it had to do with the uncertainty in the global economy. And I don't know what's new about that. I don't know how the level of uncertainty is any higher now with respect to the global economy than it was Back in September, I mean, nothing has really changed. And then the other BS reason that Powell has come up with to explain his newfound patience when it comes to rates is an absence of inflation. Now, where the Fed sees an absence of the inflation risk is beyond me. Yes, we did get a fall in the price of oil, which had been rising rather sharply until the sharp decline. But oil is already better than $10 off its lows. In fact, we're above 54. And I think based on this chart, we move a little higher. We could see oil back at 60, 65 very quickly. And then it could be moving higher from there. The reason or one of the main reasons we had the sharp sell off in oil was because the markets were anticipating a monetary policy that no longer exists. The markets were worried that the Fed was going to do what it said it was going to do back in September, which was continue to raise interest rates and shrink its balance sheet, adding to the global liquidity drain coming from massive government deficits that were not only not monetized by the Fed, but but uh, exacerbated by the Fed through its quantitative tightening. And so the threat of uh, a deluge of supply of U.N. government bonds, rising interest rates, rising dollar, was depressing demand globally for oil, and the strong dollar in and of itself was pushing down oil prices. But now that the Federal Reserve has changed policies, I would expect oil prices to quickly recover, as well as lots of other prices. And all of a sudden, you're going to start to see the inflation numbers getting worse and worse. And the Fed doesn't have the breathing room that it claims to have. In fact, Powell said that one of the reasons that central banks need to raise interest rates is if interest rates were too low too long and you're worried about inflation. Well, talk about interest rates being too low for too long. The Fed has never left interest rates this low for this long ever. So we are staring down the barrels of the worst inflation threat in U.S. history. Yet all of a sudden, Powell said that over the last few months, he's no longer worried. Even though we had these low interest rates, 0% interest rates for six years or whatever, and then we had them at you know a half a percent, 1%, even though we've had all this money printing, over the last decade, something that happened in the last few months, all of a sudden, right, a Federal Reserve that was worried about inflation because of all the money we've created and how long, how long interest rates have been kept at zero, all of a sudden, those worries are no longer there based on the last few months. What happened in the last few months? I mean, the price of oil going down can't alleviate all those concerns because prices are volatile. Oil prices can come back up as quickly as they went down. It doesn't make any sense. If the Fed was really worried about inflation a few months ago, they should be just as worried about it now because all of the cheap money and the low interest rates that elevated that threat 
that's still there. What's changed is the market and the market reaction. And believe me, had Powell not delivered today, had Powell basically come back uh, and said, you know what, the market is thinking that we're patient. I don't know where they got this idea. We're going to raise interest rates at least three more times in 2016. We don't care about the stock market. It doesn't matter to us if the stock market goes down. You know, we're caring about the real economy, and we want to take away this punch bowl. And we recognize that rates were kept too low too long, and we need to let rates normalize, not simply so we can cut them during the next recession, but because they're too low. Because 2% is ridiculous. They never should have been that low in the first place. And we're basically, you know, trying to normalize them even later than we should have. But we're trying to do it at a measured pace. But that's what we're going to do. And, oh, and by the way, the, the QT is still on autopilot. We've got to shrink this balance sheet. After all, Ben Bernanke said to Congress that we were only temporarily buying these bonds, that we were not... Uh, monetizing the debt, that the Federal Reserve was not going to be a permanent source of funding for the government. And of course, I don't want to make Howell the liar. I want to follow through with what Ben Bernanke told Congress. So we're going to continue to shrink the balance sheet. Had Jay Powell said that, the Dow would have been down a thousand points today, if not considerably more, and the bear market would have been back with a vengeance. Now, again, I still think the bear market is here. We're just enjoying this correction in the bear market that will run its course. And as it collapses down to new lows, will ultimately bring the Fed back to the table uh, with more help in the form of now we, you know, now we've got a cut rates or now we've got to launch a quantitative easing. In fact, the Fed opened the door once again to quantitative easing. Remember, I just mentioned at the September press conference just so many months ago, the Fed said that if the economy went back into recession, that its tool was going to be interest rates, that it was going to let the balance sheet just unwind anyway, right, even if we were in recession. Well, today, the Fed made clear that that's not the case. The Fed said that initially, if we have a problem with the economy, well, we will cut interest rates. But if that's not sufficient, we want to make use of all of our tools, well, what are the other tools that the Fed is talking about? Quantitative easing, that's the tool. So it's not only off autopilot, he's now ready to reverse quantitative tightening and go back to quantitative easing, which of course is what I've been saying all, all along. But once the Fed does do quantitative easing and the balance sheet explodes to much, much higher levels, obviously it's going to go to 5 trillion, 6 trillion, 7 trillion, 10 trillion. Who knows how high it's going to go? There's no way they're ever going to get it back to the height of where it was before they ended QE3. So the delusion that the Fed could ever uh, normalize or reduce its balance sheet by any significant factor will finally be, you know, blown apart. And the same thing with normalizing interest rates. If the Fed has to go back to rate cuts, which is exactly what it's going to do, then the world will figure out that rates are never going to be normal. You know, one of the, the funnier comments I think that, that Powell made was the very last comment at his press conference. You know, when, you know, he was asked to explain um, the balance sheet policy. And of course, you know, there were a lot of questions that he sidestepped because people wanted answers and the Fed didn't want to supply them. Just like, you know, Jack Nicholson uh, in A Few Good Men. I mean, the last thing that Powell wanted to tell the markets was the truth. Because believe me, 
Nobody can handle the truth. So Powell has to, you know, come up with lies or more easily just ignore a lot of the questions that he doesn't want to answer truthfully and just try to, you know, say things that he thinks the market is going to like to hear without really upsetting the apple cart. But one of the things he said uh, about the markets and the balance sheet, he said that after they put the um, the balance sheet on autopilot because he thought they wanted to set that aside so it was no longer even relevant, right? Because the Fed didn't like having this big balance sheet. It didn't like having two tools. It wanted to put that one tool away and just focus on interest rates as its main policy. So he said he wanted to make it clear and that that's what they were doing. But now all of a sudden he says that the markets want better clarity on the balance sheet, which didn't even make sense to me because he had given the markets perfect clarity on the balance sheet. That was the problem. There was a lot of clarity and the markets didn't like what they saw. In fact, they were scared of what they saw, rightfully so. So what the Fed did not provide the market with was clarity today. That's not what the Fed did. We had clarity. It was just a very scary picture that we were clearly seeing. In fact, it was a lot scarier uh, than, than what most people thought. But what the Fed basically provided the markets wasn't clarity. It was relief. Basically, the Fed said, hey, what we told you we were going to do, what we made so clear, we're not doing it anymore because the markets collapsed. And now we realize that we couldn't do it. I mean, maybe the markets had kind of lulled the Fed into a false sense of security that it could keep on doing this stuff because the Fed was hiking rates and stock market kept making new highs. And so, you know, the Fed got a little cocky. It's like, oh, maybe we could actually shrink the balance sheet too. And they found out the hard way that they can't do that because the markets came crashing down and now they have to do this about face. And of course, you know, a lot of people were trying to get Jay Powell to come clean and admit that he's doing this for the markets because there were a lot of questions about that, which he refused to answer because, again, he is not going to admit that the markets are calling the tune and he is just dancing to it because that is an admission that he's not really conducting monetary policy based on the fundamentals, based on inflation or the economy, but based on the stock market and keeping the air in a bubble. And it's only, and it's also an admission that it is a bubble if it needs air uh, to prevent it from deflating. Because basically Powell is saying the only reason we can have the stock market going up is if I keep interest rates artificially low and I have to refrain uh, from shrinking the balance sheet in order to keep the liquidity in the system. So he's not going to admit that. But you know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure this out. I think a lot of people are going to look at this press conference around the world and come to the only conclusion that they can. If Powell is saying the economy is still in great shape, right, yet he's his policy is 180 degrees different from where it was a few months ago, and the only thing that has changed during that time period is the stock market sell-off that we had in the fourth quarter – then it's clear what he's doing. Regardless of what he wants to admit, it's clear. Now, the other possibility is that the Fed has been lying the whole time about the economy, that it, you know, it it does it believes the economy is weak, but it's always believed it was weak, and it was just lying to pretend it was strong. But either way, it's either lying about the economy being strong or it's lying about the reason for its change in policy, because the reasons that they gave make no sense at all. And we'll see because the Fed maybe has backed itself into a pretty big corner here by kind of hanging its hat on the, the, the downturn in inflation. Because 
What the Fed just did today and what the Fed has been hinting that it would do leading up to today has now reversed the dollar, right? The dollar did go down today. It didn't collapse, but it was down. The dollar index was down about a half a percent, down 0.5. Some currencies, individual currencies, were much stronger. The Australian dollar was up almost one and a half percent today. But I do think the dollar is breaking down. I think the dollar has topped out and it's breaking down. And that's going to continue to put upward pressure on commodity prices. Oil prices up about a buck today. You know, we're back above $54 a barrel, 54.28. But we're putting in a head and shoulders bottom uh, in the price of oil from that big decline from, you know, close to $80 a barrel. We went down to, you know, almost $40 a barrel. Uh, but, you know, the neckline is right about where we are right now. And I think it projects up to about $65, which would be a pretty, you know, I think a quick move, a $10 move higher from here. But I don't think that's going to be the end of the rally. I think as long as the dollar is falling, I think the price of oil and just about everything else is going to go up. The gold market is sensing that as well, although I think the degree is going to increase uh you know, daily now or weekly with it comes to the price of gold. Gold was up today about $7 an ounce. We're at $13.18 and change in the price of gold. Actually up $8 now as I'm looking at it. $13.19.30 is the last uh, price. This is the high for gold, although it actually was a few dollars higher earlier in the day. But this was an eight-month high in the price of gold. Now, gold stocks were up today, but percentage-wise, the gold indexes were actually up less than the Dow or the NASDAQ. So uh, investors are still not getting it. And I think gold stocks as a group, you know, they're up about 5% on the year. They're actually lagging behind the broader stock market averages. Now, gold stocks were up in, uh, the, 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 in December, right? And, the, you know, the, the regular market got clobbered in December. So gold didn't have the December losses to recoup. But if you actually look at what the Fed is doing, the change in policy is far more bullish for gold stocks than it is for general stocks, because what they're doing is extremely bullish for the price of gold. And remember, gold stocks have already discounted in a much lower price of gold. Remember, investors are not just pricing gold stocks for where gold is today. They're pricing it for where they believe gold is going to be in the future. And where they believe it's going to be in the future uh, had a lot to do with their belief that the Fed was going to keep on raising interest rates and driving the price of gold down. Well, they're not going to be doing that anymore. So now the price of gold is not only not going to be much lower in the future, as people were betting, but it should be much higher as the Fed is flooding the world with dollars, with money, not only as it doesn't hike rates anymore, but it's going to cut them back to zero and it's going to do uh, more quantitative easing, just like the Fed said, because the uh, Powell said today, if we have another recession, and again, it's not ifs when it comes to if there's another recession, there will be another recession. If I mean, if we don't have one this year, which seems pretty likely, the Fed has already said that it's going to do quantitative easing. In fact, when when Bernanke, I mean, when Powell was talking about the balance sheet, one of the things that he said that he wanted to do is that he wanted to uh, reduce the balance sheet, but he wanted to do it in a way 
that wouldn't be disruptive for the markets, or I forget the exact words, maybe that was it, but he wanted to do it in a way that would be market friendly, which is impossible. You cannot shrink the balance sheet in a way that the markets would like it because the markets are only where they are because you expanded the balance sheet, right? You can't withdraw the stimulus and expect the markets to like it. Again, you can't take the table and yank it out from under the cloth and expect the cloth to stay floating in midair with all the dishes on it, right? If you blew up a bubble, if you propped up uh, stock prices with quantitative easing, you're going to deflate that bubble with quantitative tightening. But again, the other problem, it's not just the level of stocks that are supported by the Fed's balance sheet and its quantitative easing, but the ability of corporations to sell their debt the ability of the U.S. government to sell their debt, the ability of homeowners to continue to uh, take on mortgages. And by the way, we got a huge drop in pending home sales today. Home sales were down in December. It's almost a five-year low now in pending home sales. In fact, if you look at the data, uh, home sales are now down on a year-over-year basis for 12 consecutive months. I'm not sure when the last time that happened was, but that's a pretty big deal. And this even with the drop in mortgage rates, right? We had a little back off in mortgage rates because we had this big drop in the stock market and now the Fed turned around, interest rates actually came down a little bit. And even though interest rates came down, the air in the housing bubble is still coming out. And again, what does that tell you? That tells you that the Federal Reserve is going to need a lot more than just uh, we're not going to hike rates anymore in order to prevent this bubble from deflating. They're going to need a much bigger uh, uh, boat of monetary stimulus to try to reflate this housing bubble. And that's going to mean they're going to have to bring rates down. They're going to have to keep doing quantitative easing so they can keep buying mortgages so that people who want to buy homes can keep getting the credit because they need the Fed in that uh, market supplying the liquidity. So all of that is going to come uh, as soon as the markets demand it. You know, there was one guy that asked Powell a question. And it was probably the best question out there. It was probably the the best observation somebody made because Powell was talking about how, you know, the weakness in the global economy is, you know, why he's uh, able to, you know, be patient because he's worried that, well, maybe the weakness in the global economy will end up spilling over into an otherwise strong U.S. economy. And this reporter, and I forget uh, his name, but he pointed out correctly, he said, wait a minute, uh, Mr. Powell, but aren't isn't the weakness abroad actually helping the U.S.? I mean, aren't people buying dollars and buying U.S. assets because they're worried about uh, overseas markets? And isn't the U.S. benefiting from that? I mean, aren't we enjoying lower interest rates and, and lower consumer prices as a result of uh, foreigners seeking out U.S. assets as a safe haven? So isn't this possibly uh, you know, something that is supporting the U.S. economy and not, you know, undermining it. And then um, Powell's answer was actually pretty honest. He said, you know, you could be right. <laughs> he said that he thought that the uh, the foreign that that foreign economies or stronger foreign economies would be beneficial to the U.S. because it would help our exports. That if foreign economies were stronger you know, we would be able to export more. And so he thought that was uh, a bigger a benefit than the, 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 uh, the financial relief uh, that the reporter was asking about. But he did acknowledge that he could be right. 
But the, the reality is he's 100% right. The best thing America has going for it is how shitty it is every place else. I mean, that's all we got. I mean, the whole idea that we are the cleanest dirty shirt in the hamper means that we're in a hamper full of shirts that are dirtier than us. Well, if those other shirts get clean uh, or they're taken out of the hamper and then we're there all by ourselves, then it's not about you know us not looking quite as bad as everybody else. People will focus on just how stinky our shirt is, and that's exactly what's going to happen. In fact, we've already started that process because it was a self-fulfilling prophecy as the markets were gearing up and anticipating higher interest rates, a stronger dollar, and all this U.S. government bonds, all this debt flooding up and crowding out all the global capital, that was actually hurting uh, the global economy. That was causing flows, safe haven flows, back into the U.S. market, which was propping up our economy. The the reporter was exactly right. And what's going to happen now that the Fed has backed off Now foreign markets are going to breathe a collective sigh of relief. You're going to see a recovery abroad as people, investors, are no longer bracing for the pain of a stronger dollar and rising interest rates. That's going to spark uh, growth abroad, and that's going to make foreign assets look more attractive. I mean, after all, you got the U.S. stock market as overpriced as it's been relative to the world in 100 years. So people are going to start to look at those valuation gaps. And now with a with a tailwind of a weakening dollar instead of a headwind of a strengthening dollar, we're going to lose that lifeline coming in from abroad. And so stronger foreign economies are going to deliver higher long-term interest rates and they're going to deliver higher prices at a time where the U.S. economy is actually weakening, headed back for recession, and the budget deficits are exploding out of control. This is massive stagflation. This is the worst possible case scenario for the U.S. economy. And Powell's point about our exports, I mean, what exports? I mean, look, you know, Donald Trump made this big deal, right, um, about Foxconn that was going to build this plant in Wisconsin. They were going to manufacture um uh, large screen display screens for computers, for televisions, right? It was a, a big ceremony. Trump was bragging about it, right? Oh, America's back. America's great again. You know, companies are moving back. Jobs are moving back. Production is moving back. Well, today the story came that Foxconn decided to completely ditch its plans, that it's not going to build this factory. It's not going to hire blue collar workers to build uh, these screens in the U.S. because it can't do it uh, competitively. Well, Duh. I mean, I don't know what made them think that they could. I mean, maybe this was all an orchestrated show uh, to help the president uh, perpetuate that false narrative. But whatever it was, I mean, maybe they crunched the numbers a little a little tighter and they realized that there's no way that they can make these things in America and sell them for a profit. Right. And so it's not going to happen. Just like all of this reindustrialization, this whole renaissance that Trump and the Republicans are pretending is taking place is not taking place. It never took place. It's a bunch of nonsense. And so we are not going to benefit dramatically from exports, right? It's not that foreigners are going to export us a bunch of stuff when those their economies start growing. What's going to happen is when you get big growth in the foreign economies, 
the individuals living in those economies are just going to start consuming a lot of the stuff that they've been sending to us. That's what's going to happen. You're going to see more domestic consumption of their own production rather than shipping their excess production to the United States on credit. So what happens is our the dollar goes down and the cost of our imports goes up. So that is going to more than offset the small benefit that we will get from increased exports that may result from stronger growth abroad. And of course, the stronger growth abroad is going to not only be accompanied by slower growth domestically, but it's actually going to push down on U.S. growth rates by raising long-term interest rates and raising consumer prices, which you know mitigates how much consumers can buy. And in fact, Long-term interest rates actually rose today. The yields on the 10-year bond were down a little bit, but if you look at the 30-year yield, they were higher today. So the yield curve uh, widened a bit, and uh, the the long bond, 30-year bond yields actually went up, despite the fact that the Fed said that we're not going to be selling as many bonds as we first said, which most people would think is bullish, right? If the Fed is not going to be a big seller of treasuries, then treasury prices should rise because the market was already discounting all those sales and now the sales aren't going to take place. But yields are rising anyway, which again is an indication that investors are just starting to figure this out, that what the Fed is doing is inflationary and what is inflationary is bad for bonds. And it's also good for gold. And that's why the price of gold is rising. That's why we're almost at $1,320 an ounce. But right now, it's a slow creep, right? Some people are slowly kind of figuring this out, but it's a slow process that is about to accelerate into a much faster process. Right? I'm not sure what the, the level is. Maybe it's when gold gets above 1350 or maybe it has to get above 1400 But once it gets above some of these key levels, it's going to take off. The same thing with the dollar. Once it gets below some key support levels, it's going to break down. Between now and then is your window of opportunity, right? Your window of opportunity to move out of U.S. dollars into foreign currencies, out of U.S. stocks into foreign stocks, and out of currency in general into gold, into real money, and into gold mining companies that will benefit uh, from a remonetization of gold and a reappreciation of gold as people start to realize how wrong they've been in the past about the efficacy of Fed policy and the trajectory of, of inflation. And when they when they figure this out, and people are going to be scrambling to protect themselves, to hedge themselves. So before the scramble, right, why it's still quiet, this is the opportunity to reposition. You've got a perfect uh, um, bear market rally in U.S. stocks. Not sure how much higher this bear market rally is going to go. In fact, we could be pretty close to topping out now. I mean, the only bit of good news that's still out there would be uh, the ending of uh, the trade dispute with China. I mean, that's all the market's got to anticipate. So maybe you've got that last piece of good news before the market tops out. I'm not really sure, but I wouldn't want to press my luck. I just say you get out. Meanwhile, even if U.S. stocks keep rising, foreign stocks should rise faster, right? So even if you get out of your foreign U.S. stocks at a higher price, Well, you end up paying an even higher price for your foreign stocks, especially when you look at the FX rates that you're going to get when you have to sell your dollars for foreign currencies. And again, even if the U.S. stock market keeps rising, I believe gold stocks will rise much faster. Now, they haven't been rising faster so far this year, 
But I think that's going to change. I mean, at some point, somebody's going to discover these stocks. Some Wall Street firm is going to finally put a buy on one of these gold stocks, if not several of these gold stocks. So you're going to start to see this going on. So to me, it doesn't even matter if the U.S. stock market is topped out or not. You still want to sell it because even if it goes up, it's not going to go up as much as foreign stocks or gold stocks. And if it goes down, it's going to go down more. So just get out and get out of the U.S. dollar. Now, we do have more economic news coming out. In fact, we were supposed to get the GDP numbers today, which didn't come out because of the government shutdown. I think they just started to announce today a timetable for releasing a lot of the data that has been held up, right? Because most of the data hasn't come out. And my feeling is that more of it would have been bad had it been released. But we're going to get the uh, non-farm payroll numbers, the uh, ADP number that came out today was above expectations, particularly when it comes to manufacturing. So we got another so-called strong uh, private sector payroll number came out today. So again, like last month, uh, that was a harbinger of a much bigger than expected number on the payroll report on Friday. I don't really think it matters much what this number is going to be, because I don't think anybody is concerned now about the Fed. I mean, the Fed just pretty much came out and said that it's going to be patient. And I don't think it's going to change policy based on a jobs report that we get on Friday. So even if it's a strong number, I don't think the markets are going to be worried that it's going to prompt the Fed to do something. I mean, they may pay a little bit more attention to the wage numbers because basically the Fed has put it all on inflation now. What the Fed said it really needs to see before it acts is inflation. And of course, I call BS on that because I don't think no matter how high inflation gets, the Fed will never admit it's a problem because the minute it admits it's a problem, it's game over. So all it can do is rationalize why it's not a problem. So even if the numbers get high, the Fed's going to say it's transitory. The Fed's going to say uh, it's symmetrical. I mean, the Fed's going to do anything but admit that inflation is a problem because once it admits it's a problem, then, it, then it's game over because it's a problem that the Fed can't solve, right? It's impossible. So if the Fed admits there's inflation, then it's basically – uh, admitting that everything is going to implode because it can't possibly fight it without uh, causing a worse financial crisis than the one that we had in 2008. So the best strategy for the Fed is to pretend inflation is not a problem so it doesn't have to fight it. But again, at some point, you know, you, you can't deny it forever. I mean, even though you have these government statistics that hide inflation, uh, like the CPI, I mean, at some point, inflation is so big that even if you hide it, it still looks pretty bad. But I think the Fed is going to try as long as it can uh, to ignore any inflation threat by pretending it doesn't exist so that, you know, it doesn't actually have to do anything. It can bark right, about how it would fight inflation, but it can never bite because of the bite that it would take out of the U.S. economy uh, and the, the financial markets, the banks, the U.S. government. So I don't think that a, a, uh, a bad jobs number, I mean, a strong job number is going to be a problem. I think what might be a problem for the markets is if we get a very weak number. I mean, there's no indications yet that we're going to get a very weak number based on the data that we've had. But I think the markets would be more worried about a weak number because a weak number would call into question the strength of the economy, um, the reliability of earnings estimates and retail sales and the consumer. So my guess would be with the Fed on the sidelines and patient that good news is good news and bad news is bad news, except I still think that we're in a bear market. Uh, and this is just a bear market rally. And so I don't know, you know how much more upside the market might have, even if we get a good report that makes people feel more optimistic. But certainly, I think 
a weak report would be very, very bad for the dollar in the position it's in right now, and it would be extremely bullish for gold. So if we do get a weaker than expected report, I would expect to see some big movements there. We'll see what happens. But again, remember, these jobs numbers are lagging economic indicators, right? It's The layoffs don't cause the recession. The layoffs follow the recession because leading up to the recession, Nobody sees it coming, including employers, right? Employers are really optimistic. You know, they're hiring more workers. They're expanding. They think the expansion is going to go on indefinitely, right? Especially when everybody is saying the same thing. When you've got Trump out there talking about how this is the greatest economy ever, right? The stock market was at new highs. I mean, everybody is excited. So, you know, nobody wants to risk laying people off and not having enough workers to meet all the demand that people are expecting to come. So what happens is people don't anticipate the recession and then it hits anyway. And then they have to lay off. They have to react. And in fact, the more employers are surprised by the recession, the sharper the layoffs might be once the recession hits. So first you get the recession and then you get the layoffs and then those layoffs make the recession worse, right? And usually when the economy bottoms out is when unemployment is at its high, right? Because when the economy is, you know, at the low point, most employers don't know it's the bottom, right? I mean, when you're at the bottom, you think you're going a lot lower, right? You you know, you don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. You just see darkness, right? People think that it's going to get a lot worse when it's, at the bottom, you only know you're at the bottom when you're looking down on it, when things didn't get worse. But when, when employers are really worried that things are going to get a lot worse, right, they, they, they fire even more people and then they're, they're afraid to hire anybody. So you get this high point in unemployment when the, the, uh, the economy is at its worst. And of course, you get the lows in unemployment, uh, you know, when people think everything is great. And, and so right now, obviously, the optimism has come down somewhat. In fact, there's just been some indicators that have come out, some sentiment indicators that show that uh, people's optimism for the future uh, has really collapsed in the last few months. Now, I don't know if how much that has to do with the government shutdown, if it has anything to do with the government shutdown, or if it has to do with the stock market, but that is generally a pretty good indicator. People think things are okay right now, but they're starting to get worried about the future. And obviously that would include employers starting to get worried about the, the, the future. So I don't, I think that we're going to get uh, some weakening jobs numbers, some disappointing numbers, whether that starts on Friday or not, it's hard to say. But when we really get the bad numbers, when we really get the negative prints, when all of a sudden we lose a half a million or a million jobs in one month, that's going to happen. Of course, by then it's too late. It's too late for the Fed to read the tea leaves when it comes to those layoffs because we're already in recession, right? When we start hemorrhaging jobs, the recession is already here. And that can happen very, very quickly. And of course, the Fed is already, you know, is always taken by surprise and then they're going to slash interest rates back to zero and it's not really slashing because they don't have far to go we're only at two percent it's not a big move down to zero which means that we're going to do qe4 and qe4 is going to have to be enormous not only to make up for the small amount of stimulus provided by you know just two 200 basis points of cutting but the deficits at that point are going to be two to three trillion a year. And so we're going to need to monetize all of that. And so you do the math on how much QE we're going to have to do on a monthly basis to monetize all that. And imagine that what's that's going to do to the dollar and imagine what that's going to do to the price of gold. And that is going to accelerate uh, the dollar crisis and the sovereign debt crisis, whether we can make it uh, past the 2020 elections. 
Um, we'll see. I mean, I think the crisis part um, won't happen until after the election. So maybe thank God for small favors, because that at least could be blamed, hopefully, on whatever socialist uh, uh, succeeds uh, Donald Trump as president. Uh, but we will have a, a recession. You know, we will have stagflation. That is coming. Right. So that, of course, will be blamed on Trump and the Republicans. But hopefully the real disaster that is going to be on a much larger scale, right, that is going to result uh, from the failure of the stimulus to reflate the bubbles. But the long overdue overdose of stimulus that collapses the dollar and brings this whole, you know, U.S. dollar based financial system, it turns it upside down and, and, and you know, calls into question the dollar's role as the reserve currency or ends the dollar's role as the reserve currency, just as America is preparing to embark on socialism, just as we want to provide everybody with free health care and universal basic income and free college. You know, the exorbitant privilege to pay for all that is gone. And there's no way that we're going to get all the money to do that from the billionaires, even if we could tax them at 100 percent, assuming that they stayed in the country. You know, most of them would pay the exit tax and leave. But even if they all left and paid the exit tax, it's a drop in the bucket. And of course, once the billionaires leave, then who are you going to tax? You know, once the entrepreneurs shut down their businesses, who's going to employ anybody? And once you have no more private production, uh, you know, who are you going to tax? Where is the money going to come from? That's the problem with socialism, right? Eventually you run out of other people's money. The problem with America is we've already run out of our own money and we're about to run out of the ability to borrow other people's money just before we try socialism. So in America, it will fail before it's even started. I almost forgot. I wanted to mention my upcoming speaking events. I am going to be speaking at the Orlando Money Show coming up on the 8th and the 9th of February. I think the show starts on the 7th and goes through the 10th. I'll be there from the 8th and the 9th. In fact, both of my talks, uh, my keynote is actually a debate. I'm on a bull bear debate. Of course, I'm the bear, and that's going to be early on uh, the morning of the 8th. And then my own talk on uh, my workshop is going to be later that day, I think around 5 o'clock. So this is a free event. So you don't have to pay any money to attend. You just got to register, though, at the money show. Uh, dot com. It's the Orlando Money Show. If you live in town, obviously you could just drive by. You know, you could if you're out of town, you want to fly in and make hotel reservations. You can do that as well. Uh, I will have a booth. We'll be down there. I think a couple of the guys from my office down in Boca Raton uh, will be in attendance. So make sure and stop by and say hi and come by my workshop. In fact, if you want to watch the talk that I gave at the Vancouver Resource Conference a couple of weeks ago. It's up on my website now. In fact, we had some problems. We originally uploaded it and something happened to my voice. So it sounded like I had been sipping on a, a helium balloon. I think it sped it up a little bit. So we had to take it down and re-upload it, but it's up there now. So you can see the keynote. You can also see one of the panels. I did a gold versus uh, oil uh, or, or gold. It was just a gold panel rather. Um, and I put that gold panel up. It's me and three other people, including Roy Sabag uh, of Gold Money and Manet. So check out uh, that, uh, that panel. It's a good discussion. Also, my birthday is coming up in March. On March 23rd, I think I'm going to be 56 years old, which is a very scary thought for me. Uh, the years are really moving by quite rapidly, as anybody can tell from watching uh, the hairs on my head uh, and uh, the wrinkles on my face. 
Uh, but um, I'm trying to grow old as gracefully as I can. But if you want to celebrate my 56th birthday with me, you can do that and you can kill two birds with one stone by joining me on the Real Estate Investor Summit at Sea. You know, I've been going on the Summit at Sea. I think this will be my seventh or eighth time going on this cruise. And it's not that I love cruising so much. I just love cruising with these guys. I mean, I have a lot of fun, even though I'm not a big real estate investor, although I actually, unfortunately, own a bunch of real estate now, given, you know, that I bought a lot here in Puerto Rico. Um, but, you know, I'm not a big real estate investor myself, but a lot of people are. I mean, if you are into real estate, syndicating real estate, I mean, this is a great cruise to be on. But you also have some alternative investment guys like me. Uh, that that go on the cruise, but I just enjoy myself. I mean, these guys have a great sense of humor. They really know how to entertain the people that come to their events. So you'll have a lot of fun. I mean, maybe you'll learn some stuff about real estate. I mean, you'll get to hear me speak, um, but you'll have a great time. I mean, that's that's for sure. Even even if you don't do any real estate investing, I think you'll just enjoy yourself, uh, and you know you'll enjoy the the uh, the conference events as well. But they come up with lots of stuff to do, uh, lots of excursion events and things to do on the ship. So the ship actually sets sail on March 14th out of Fort Lauderdale, and it comes back on March 24th. So my birthday is the last night. And in fact, my mother's birthday, and I'm not going to tell anybody how old she is because she's actually going to be on this cruise with us, but she has her birthday on March 15th. So you got two shift birthdays uh, for the price of one. You got my mother and you got me. Uh, so come celebrate with us. I'm not really sure how many cabins they have left. And I think there are also, usually there's an on-land event that comes first. Uh, and so we have a conference and some people just go for the conference. Uh, but you're really missing out on a lot if you miss out on the cruise. But I know not everybody has, you know, a week that they can, they can kill in March. But, you know, a lot of people, if it falls on spring break, bring your kids. There are a lot of kids there as well. I'm going to have my younger kids, my older kids, son, Spencer, who a number of you have actually started following on Twitter. I've said he's become quite the chartist. I mean, I get a lot of stuff from, from Spencer. He's really it's surprising how much he knows now about the markets and about economics. Probably knows more than anyone on the Fed. Uh, but, you know, you can follow him on Twitter, but he won't be there because his spring break doesn't coincide with the cruise. But I'm going to be taking my two younger kids on there on the cruise. So it's a good time to meet the family, meet the wife, meet the mother, spend some time with me. You don't have to bring me a present. But if you want to register for the Summit at Sea, you go to shiftbirthday.com. That is the website, shiftbirthday.com, and then it'll tell you how to sign up. We set sail again March 14th, and I look forward to celebrating my birthday at sea with as many of my podcast listeners as possible.